Welcome to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville heard all over the world, and on other community radio stations like KCEI, Cultural Energy Radio, coming out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song. WalterParks.com if you'd like to know more about Walter's music. Davine Dial, once again, much appreciation goes to you for managing WPVM-FM. We couldn't do it without you. I've said it a hundred times. I'll say it a hundred more. And if any of you out there listening would like to know more about community radio, uh, WPVMFM.org. That's a good place to start. Lots of great information on WPVMFM.org. You can always reach me at my email, nave at jamesnave.com. My website is jamesnave.com. You can find out what I'm up to there. I am up to something every Saturday morning called the Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week session with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. We gather for an hour at 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, and we write with a group of people who show up on our Zoom call. The door is always open. We'd love to have you. Just you can pop in, no problem. You can find out all about it at imaginativestorm.com. That's imaginativestorm.com. Today I'm replaying a show I aired a a little over two years ago. It's with Paul O'Connor. Those of you who live in Asheville, you may not have heard his name. If you live in Taos, you probably do know Paul O'Connor's name. He's a an artist. He's a photographer. He's a writer. He does all sorts of things. And I had the occasion to go out to Paul's house back in the days when I could go around and do interviews live. I do more of my interviews now on Zoom. But then I did the interview with Paul and I did it live. And I thought, wow, this would be a good good interview to re-air because Paul has some terrific creative insights about how he goes about his life and the things that he makes. So I started this interview by asking him to describe his house and his environment. So here's what happened between us. Give us a little background about the kind of house it is and some of the history involved in it. Sure. My wife and I came here 30 years ago on our honeymoon and never left. We were living in uh, Topanga Canyon, California. And Upon arriving here, one of the first people I met was this architect named Mike Reynolds, who's a visionary, just an amazing, inspirational, creative individual, even beyond architecture, really about, even back then, about climate, sustainability. And he had this quip, beavers and wasps make their own houses, but humans don't. And there's something wrong with that. (laughs) You know, why can they do it and we can't? So his whole thing was really about putting the power and the imagination of build your own house. So that's exactly what I did. I started doing photography work for him. In fact, I did the photography for his first book, Earthship One, in trade for a set of plans, which I didn't follow. (laughs) Uh, I followed his genius, his inspiration and all that. But it's really about connecting yourself with your dwelling. So it really evolves. Describe the dwelling we're in now. Give us a 
sense of it? Yeah, so we are on the mesa. It's essentially flat land, although with all the arroyos, there's actually more contour than most people think. It's essentially a pit house. We're five feet underground. So there was a lot of um, digging. We had uh, backhoes coming in here, digging these holes. Then you build the exterior walls with rammed earth in old tires. So you're taking trash, disposed automobile tires, and using them as a form. It's essentially a form to make a rammed earth structure. So when you say old tires, do you chop the tires up or do you use them as one might expect a tire to be used when it's a regular tire? Yeah, you use them in their entirety. And there's mountains of tires in the landfills. You know, they're really a problem. And here, I think I calculated once, we used 500 tires in this house. And I don't believe I'll be using 500 tires in my lifetime. So I'm actually using something more that I'm putting back into the landfills. So again, it's essentially a form. You lay them flat and stagger them like bricks and ram fill them with earth. So you, you have a wall that's almost two feet thick, plastered. In my case, we did cement plaster. So it, it looks fairly conventional, although it's very organic by the nature of um, the shape and using tires. This house, even though it's buried in the ground, has a lot of light. That's by design. Yeah, the whole south face is thermal pane glass pointed south. So we get that passive solar. And then there's seven operable skylights throughout the house. So it's, it's a cave with light. And you've been living here 30 years. What are some of the memorable experiences you've had living in this house? And I've also noticed you have outbuildings as well. So could you tell us a bit about how this has expanded over the last 30 years? Yeah, uh, there's one story, and it's right there in front of us, that, that little shiplap joint of two beams in the ceiling. I was working for a contractor in Malibu, California, building and remodeling homes, primarily remodeling. And the permit process, the inspections, the neighbors invariably sue. I mean, it's, it's a whole production to just built in California, certainly in the Coastal Commission. So when I came here in 1989, we bought this property in 90 and just started into it. You had to drive to Santa Fe an hour and a half away to get a building permit, which I did. 99 bucks or 100 bucks. And then there's the name of the inspector, and the closest inspector was in Española which is 45 minutes away. So I call him to get on his good side. I said, you know, my name's Paul. I'm about to proceed. How, you know, what do we do? He says, oh, give me a call when you're ready to put the roof on. And I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> um, so you can see, I mean, it's totally different back then, the whole building process. So two years later, I'm starting to put these beams on the roof. And I said, well, I should give this guy a call. And he came out. And the only thing he could find was that joint right there. And he said, you know, you might want to put a post there next to it to help support that. He, w he wasn't too happy about that joint. And that was it. I never called him again. He never came back. And five years later, the house was finished. 
And you have the clearance and everything to go ahead and have the electricity and utilities? You know, again, back then it was kind of the Wild West building. I don't recall any other inspections. And now you're here all these years later and the house hasn't fallen down. No. So in terms of the other kinds of work you do, I know you have a studio out back. Could you tell us about your artistic life? What do you do artistically and how long have you done it and how does it feed you and benefit the world? Yeah, so when I arrived, uh, I had just finished my time at Pasadena Art Center studying photography, moved out here, quickly started a business of photographing art for artists, copy work, you know, for museums, galleries, making brochures, but essentially just copy work. And I always did it on location, so I went to people's studios to do the work or the gallery. And it just really opened up my eyes to this art community. Uh, inspired by Rod Goble, was doing portraits of artists. And I, I did the same thing. I, I said, well, I'm going to do the same project, but photographically. So I started photographing black and white portraits of artists. And all the, all the while, I'm building this house, which I now look back as my early sculptures. Um, most people know me as a photographer. But again, in those early years when I'm building this house, I was also the studio assistant for Ron Davis, Ronald Davis, who is a really well-known painter, abstract expressionist with hard-edged geometric shapes coming out of the San Francisco Art Institute. We, we knew each other in Malibu. He wound up moving out here after me. He's my neighbor. And I became his studio assistant when he decided to switch from painting to sculpture. So I was in his studio helping him with his work for three years. And that is really when my desire to make sculpture was, was illuminated. He went back to what he normally does. He didn't continue with the sculpture, but I did continue. And admittedly, doing Ron Davis knockoffs, you know, like that one over there on the wall. Uh, there's a couple more in the kitchen. But I was just obsessed with making these things. I never sold them. I never showed them. I gave a few to friends. But essentially, that process and imagery really was eating away at me. I mean, I just was obsessed with it. What does the imagery look like? Well, there's there's the mechanics, quote-unquote, of perspective, three-point perspective. So even though it's a flat object, it appears to be three-dimensional in space. And that's kind of the signature of Ron Davis's work, I would say, uh, among other things. I mean, the guy's a genius. But in terms of mechanics, there's perspective, which gives form. So in 2012, fast forward, and this was in the early 90s when I was working for him. Fast forward to 2012 when my portrait book came out. I felt like a chapter closed with photography, even though it's still kind of going on in the background. But in 2012, I built that studio. And I was just determined to find my own voice. And I gave myself an assignment, essentially, to get away from... Ron's influence. So I picked two shapes, a square and a hexagon. 
And I think the correct term's isometric. There's no perspective. They're flat and the lines are parallel. So there's no vanishing point. That's where I started with a square and a hexagon. You know, it's evolved within those parameters and there's elements within that that have evolved. So just working in those parameters of a square and a hexagon, I very honestly came upon these voids. And what it was was a square piece I'm working on, two panels, metal and wood. And, you know, it takes a lot of work to get them finished. And midway through, the knot in the wood fell out. And I was like, oh, my gosh, there it goes. It's ruined. And then I kind of saw it in a different light. I saw it as a void. And it reminded me, actually, of um, the work of Ken Price, who's a ceramic sculptor, amazing work. And he does a lot of these voids with these amorphic shapes. And some of his voids are hard edge, angular. But So I just painted the, the inside of the hole black, and it was a turning point. You know, I really was reflecting, you know, what is this? What is this for me? And I've been, been inspired by several artists' voids. Another one is Ron Cooper, who had these series of work that have just always blown me away. And it's, it's a void with light coming out, emanating. Uh, Ken Price is with his voids with the black going in. When people see your, your work and they see those voids, what are some of the things they talk about? Well, how I made it my own is... I regularized them. I brought them always to the absolute center, not just randomly off to wherever they happen to be. They're, they're always in the center, like a mandala. You know, it really becomes a central focal point. And those holes are either round or they're hexagon in shape to reflect the piece. Uh, the rounds are in the square pieces. The hexagons are in the hexagon pieces. It's really symbolic of purity because the, the black that's created is so pure. And of course, next to the wood or metals with patinas or whatever, there's, there's, there's traces of, of corrosion, whereas the black is always just pure. You fall into it. And I, I think that's what I'm attracted to is the purity. So when you think of purity, why is that a theme for you? What's so intriguing about that? Well, purity, and, and I wouldn't just limit it to that. That kind of just came up. I've used that word before. It came up here. But it's, it's the absolute void. It's, it's the generation of creativity, you know, from nothing to something. It's the form and formless animating principle of life. You know, we can't touch or know it or feel it. It's ineffable it's also not visual it's it's the void and it's that purity it's it's magic so when you think about what you're doing now and you're working in your, your studio and you reflect back on when you were younger what are some of the things that you brought forward to today that you had when you were a child you know i was really fortunate my dad loved to travel and he loved art and growing up not every summer, but every other summer, often, we would go to Europe, London, Paris, Rome, and go to all the great museums, the cathedrals. We actually wound up moving to England for three years, the whole family, just so that we could be closer to all of that. 
and have that as our base and travel. So again, from a very young age, I was exposed to amazing art and architecture. What are some of the things you remember about that time when you were young? What piece of work struck you or museums sticks with you today? You know, um, well, Hieronymus Bosch and Goya. <laughs> My dad loved the, those, uh, those guys. And when you were growing up, you said you lived in Europe. Where did you? Where were you born, and what was it like when you were much younger? Yeah, I was born in um, in Santa Monica, and we lived in the Palisades. We kind of moved around, but we're the West Side, you know, Malibu, Santa Monica, Pacific Palisades. But again, we always traveled a lot. So people moved to Malibu to live. You grew up in Malibu. What's it like to think of a place like Malibu in that area as your your hometown? What are your memories like there that might not be the same as newcomers? Yeah, well, um, it's funny. My Malibu friends that actually did grow up in Malibu would not like to hear me say I grew up in Malibu because I was in the Palisades in Santa Monica. Big difference. Um, but to answer your question is, you know, I really remembered as, as being, um, I had all this freedom and there was all these young families. It seemed like there was kids everywhere. It was just go out and play and come home before dark. You know, that doesn't happen anymore. I'm the last of seven kids. So my parents kind of even more gave me more freedom. It's just, you know, again, come home for dinner. That was, that was it. So I had this wonderful um, time. I could, we could literally walk to the beach from our house. And I spent a lot of time at the beach. What about your parents? How did they end up in California? Were they born there or did they come from somewhere else? Yeah, my dad is from St. Paul, Minnesota. And my mom's from London, Canada. And they came out west. Why did they come out west? I have no idea. You know, you know that's interesting when I think about how much I think I know. And then when I come to a place of intimacy, like why did my parents come somewhere or why did my parents do something? And I don't, I don't know. It, there's this, it's an interesting void, which may be yeah. part of the art you're doing. It could be. You know, I do know he was my dad was educated by the Jesuits, Loyola, Marymount there in Playa del Rey. I don't know if it was his education. He came out here to study, and he got a degree in law. He's got a law degree. And... So going back to this book you did, Images of Artist in Taos, mm -hmm. you started that a long time ago, and then you actually published the book. A lot of people who listen to this show are wondering about how can they engage their work? How can they be more artistic or how can they express themselves creatively? So tell us about this book. I know a fair amount about it. I have a copy of it myself. And it, it came out and has become an institution in Taos. Mm -hmm. So what's that all about? And tell us about some of the people you have in the book, the characters of Taos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I always had the quip, which is true. You know, I'm boldly going where every photographer's gone before, portrait of an artist. 
but you know that didn't bother me and it's like well this is going to be my take on doing portraits of artists and i think just sticking with an idea and allowing yourself to grow within those parameters again with the sculptures giving myself an assignment and then finding out the creativity within those borders and it evolves and then you go beyond those borders and then you create new ones and then you go beyond those so I think just perseverance and continuity. Well, tell us about the photographs. I know you mentioned you like to shoot eyes. Yeah, there too. They're ultimately portraits of eyes. There's one smile out of 60 in the book, and that was John Nichols because he had just gotten his new teeth. <laughs> I think he <laughs> wanted to show them off. Yeah, I feel smiles become a barrier to entering into the eyes. Like, we'll go to that. It's like there's more going on when you have a full set of teeth or a big smile going on. It's like, why is he smiling? Whereas if there's no smile, we go for the eyes to engage. I mean, on one level or another, we want to engage. And I love photographing older people, under six and over 60. That was my realm. I love kids and I love older people. So I immediately started photographing the old timers of Taos. And consequently, when the book was published, uh, fully one out of three had passed away. And they were known as the Taos moderns. They came here, uh, primarily men, but not all men. They came with the GI Bill to study with Andrew Dosberg, and they never left. Many of, them, many of them never left. There's a whole chunk of artists here that are here because of that program. And I photographed many of those. Say more about that program and reflect a bit on why you think Taos is such fertile ground for people to make art in. Of course, yeah, I wasn't there for that, but I can share my experience. When TZ and I arrived here, it just blew us away. I mean, we had never been here. We had never been to New Mexico. I worked in an art gallery. And I'll swing back to your question, but speaking of my personal experience, I met this artist from Taos. And there was this standing inv invitation, come visit anytime you want. And we finally did, actually as part of our honeymoon. And within three days, we rented a place. Drove back to Topanga, packed, came right back. I mean, that's how jolting it was, the experience of like, oh, my God, this is a place to be. Why do you think that's the case? A lot of places exist and people pass through and they don't come back. What was so magnetic about this? I think the sky and the clouds. You know, both TZ and I grew up in beach towns along the coast, and there's always that horizon line and, and this big sky I have that feeling here. I, you know, I have friends along the coast that say, how can you live so far from the ocean? And I say, well, I feel like I'm in the ocean here. It's hard to describe, but it, it, it really grabbed us. And of course, ultimately, not only the, the huge sky and nature here, it's the people, the creative people. I mean, nobody comes here on a career move, which is another... <laughs> 
good sign as far as I'm concerned, because it's people of heart and passion and creativity, not let's figure out how to make a lot of money. This all started in the late 1800s, I think, didn't it? And when you photographed some of these people, they must have gone back quite a ways in time because they were older when you shot them. Well, the whole Taos being a magnet to artists, you know, I don't want to quote a date because I don't actually know. You know, when those early, the old wagon wheel breaking down and those artists never leaving. There's a story that you can read online, you know, the the broken wheel incident, I think it's called, where two artists, and I don't remember their names, very famous painters, were out in this area touring around painting. They had a a wagon with a horse and yep. wheels and their gear in the back, you know, and it, probably the old, the precursor to the the old Volkswagen <laughs> right. touring bus, and the wheel broke. And one of the artists came to Taos and had the wheel fixed. And while he was here, he discovered the plaza and discovered the light and discovered the town and went back to his friend and said, "This is the place we need to stay." And they invited other people to come. Now, that's the story that I've read online and have heard many times. Absolutely. And I've, I've, I know that story as well. And, and, and kind of jokingly, we all say, what's your broken wheel story? You know, how did you wind up here? And ours was, we just came to say hello to this artist and again, never left. Well, it's an interesting, um, interesting way that Taos brings, brings us here and, Speaking of getting somewhere, we've arrived at the half hour, Mm. so I'd like to pause for a moment and say you're on the road with Twice Five Miles Radio. I'm your host, James Nave. We're broadcasting on WPVMLP, Asheville 103.7, streaming online, WPVMFM.org. We're sponsored by Ohm Sanctuary, Asheville Community Yoga, Leaf Community Arts, Walter Parks, hat tip to you for the theme song. We always appreciate that. You showing up every week with us. And if you'd like to hear more about Walter, you can go to walterparks.com and check out what Walter's music's all about. I also would like to remind you I'm teaching a six-week creativity workshop in Asheville beginning February 24th on a Monday night, 7 to 9 p.m. and going until the 30th of March on a Monday night, 7 to 9 p.m. So we'll be gathering for six six Monday nights to explore the Artist Way ideas, the Artist Way Creativity Workshop, I'm calling it. And I have taught this workshop for many, many years, and it's always a pleasure to have people show up and sit in the circle and explore the creative things that that happen to be on the deck for that night. I also wanted to remind you that if you would like to come visit WPVM-FM Studios. We would love to have you. There's a little museum in the studio, and it's a great spot. Wonderful, wonderful location on Wall Street in Asheville. And the office is clean as it can be and well-organized and very colorful with a theme of red. The red is the theme, and it looks out on the street, and you can look down on Wall Street and just have a, have a wonderful time. And if you have children, you can bring them down and they can take a look at what a radio station is all about. And so I encourage you to come on down and visit with us a bit. And if you have some love for radio, you can become part of the station in lots and lots of different ways, aside from a visit. Maybe even you might be interested in doing a show like this. Who knows? 
So again, the Artist Way Creativity Workshop is happening. Come visit us at the museum and at the radio station. And you can always reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com. And I'm here with Paul O'Connor, and we're talking about creativity. And Paul, I wanted to tell you that one of, that my broken wheel incident mm-hmm. actually happened in Boulder, Colorado. And it was in 1995. It was in February. And I had traveled from Asheville to Boulder to visit some friends there. And we were hanging out on a Saturday, and it was snowing. And my friend said, well, you should look at the paper and see what's going on tonight. And I looked at the paper, and lo and behold, there was a little creativity workshop offered at Borders Bookstore on 29th Street in Boulder at the time. I don't know if it's still there or not. And it was being taught by Julia Cameron, who wrote The Artist Way. And after the workshop, I walked up to Julia and spoke to her and said, well, I I loved what you did, and I, I think creativity is a good thing, and what else can I do? And she said, oh, just be creative. And she gave me her address, hmm. which was the post office box here in Taos. And she said, if you ever come to Taos, send me a postcard and we can visit. And I said, okay. So I walked out the door and about halfway across the parking lot, I thought, I'll never, ever go to Taos. I don't know if that's ever going to happen. So I turned around, went back in and said, well, what are you doing now? She said, oh, we're all going down to the Boulder Mall for sushi. So I said, well, can I come? And she said, sure, join us. So off we went. And I got to know her that night. And she came to North Carolina for a visit. And then during the visit in North Carolina, she said, would you like to come to Taos and and visit me? And I said, okay. And she was exploring the idea of a creativity camp here in Taos at the Mabel Dodge, at Mabel Dodge Lujan house. And she wanted me to help her put this camp together. Mm. So I said, yes. And we came out to visit uh, another writer who lived here. You may know her, Natalie Goldberg. And Natalie invited us to come out on the mesa to a an earth ship where she was living and she cooked chicken and talked about how to do the creativity camp. So in 1995, I came here and, and that was my broken wheel incident. And I've been coming in and out ever since. Yeah. Oh, that's great. I love these stories. I mean, there's a book to be put together of the broken wheel stories of Taos. Actually, our daughter was born here at the midwifery center 1990. And in 1996, right when you were arriving, we left for France. We spent eight years in France living on a boat. Well, how about that? Can you tell us about what it's like to live on a boat in France? I have a friend who lives on a boat now, and it's a little, little boat. It's not Mm -hmm. a very grand boat. Mm -hmm. And yet it's a boat on the river, Yeah, just outside of Paris. So what was it like to live on a boat in France, and how did that happen? And tell us all about that adventure. Well, if I can do a little backtracking, I love deserts. So on our honeymoon, we were in Borrego Springs, Joshua Tree, Mojave, camping. And Tizia was reading a portrait of an artist, the biography of uh, Georgie O'Keefe. And at night, she'd sometimes read to me what she was, what was going on in the book. And then she mentioned the word Taos. And I go, Taos, I know an artist from Taos. Let's go look him up. So we drifted across Arizona and came here, and that's the rest of that story. So books are involved. Now, 
as soon as our daughter was born, Tizia really had that instinct. She wanted to give our daughter the French culture young. And the only way to do that is have them go to school there. So we were trying to figure out how to be in France, how to be in France. And it just so happened she was reading uh, the diaries of Anaïs Nin, and she talks about her days living on a barge in Paris. You know, I got to watch what Tizia reads, you know, <laughs> keep her away from certain books. It, it was what led us to even imagine and think, well, yeah, that's the way to live in France is on a boat. So she went to Holland. She has a lot of friends in, in Holland and bought this 1927 75 foot long Dutch barge that was a fixer upper, which gave me something to do. And then with her Dutch friends, navigated it down the canals and rivers to Paris. And that's the first time I even saw the boat. This is kind of pre-internet. I met the boat in Paris, got a handle of how to navigate it. And then with our Dutch friends, we took it all the way down to Toulouse and lived on the Canal de Midi. What was the boat like and what was it like living on a boat? In, and you didn't live on the boat in Paris, you lived in Toulouse then. In Toulouse, yeah, we, we lived in Toulouse. It was fantastic. Again, it's, it's, a, it's a 1927. It was a functioning working barge that had been converted into a home, I'm going to guess in the 50s or 60s. And I think every five to 10 years, they put another layer of linoleum or crap on the wall and floors. So I literally gutted room at a time down to bare metal, just down to the hall, and then rebuilt with exotic hardwoods that I was recuperating from jobs. I was working as a charpentier. I was working in construction. There was a dry dock where ships were being torn apart and stripped down. And I would dumpster dive and get the old cabinets and all this mahogany and teak. Just, they just throw it all away. And I would mill it down. I'd cut it and reuse it for my boat. So the, the entire boat got remodeled with recycled exotic woods. So you lived there for how long? And finally, what made you decide to give that lifestyle up and return back to the desert? Yeah, we were there for eight years. And uh, Sophia was not doing well in school. And at first I thought, well, that's just because she's my daughter. And the second was, well, then it's the shifting from being in America to France. And then I don't know why it took us so long, but both Teezy and I are dyslexic. And lo and behold, so is she. And in France, it's tough. They don't even acknowledge that. So she was doing really bad in school, you know. Um, it's a lot about form, not understanding. So if there's three spelling mistakes, it's a zero, you failed. So she was failing miserably. That's one reason. And myself, I wanted to come back to where you could do these kind of projects like we've done here, like we're sitting in, these kind of fantastical creative building projects, which you can't really do in, in France. Were you able to go under the table when you were renovating your boat, or did you have to have a lot of inspections? No, that was all done under the table. The good thing about boats is 
It's international waterways. They are French, but I'm saying international in the sense that there'd be Germans, Brits, all these people sailing by or maybe tying up to a tree and spending a week or a month. It's kind of an international zone. And so we're, we were just left alone. So what happened to the boat? Did you finally sell it or did you yeah. hate to say goodbye? It was tough. It was actually tough. We had a great life there, but we sold it to a woman from England and she had it towed across the channel and it's now in London. On a river in London? Yeah. yeah absolutely. Is she still living in it? You know, that was um, 2004 that, that we sold it. So we haven't been in touch with her. So your boat is somewhere and somebody's having a yeah. wonderful time in this new boat that looks like it was built in the ni 1927, but has all this fantastic wood in it. Woodworking. Yeah, it really was. It was, um, it was a beautiful boat. And we navigated a lot. Uh, 75 feet seems long. People would go, oh my God, that's a huge boat. But in the barge world, it's small. I could navigate it myself. That's how portable it was or movable. And we, we did. We, we navigated a lot. A lot of the people that live on barges, they don't ever move. It's like a house to, that just floats. I know when I've been to Paris, which is often, I've walked along the Seine and those barges are there and they look permanent and some of them look very, very fancy. Yeah. And, and they're, they're fabulous spaces, you know. But we also wanted that added feature of being able to navigate. Did you ever get mold or water problems? No. There was mold that I, I removed, you know, with all those layers of kind of bad materials. It was pretty, it was pretty funky in there. But by the time it was completely done, you know, we insulated it well. You know, we did it well. And after you sold the boat and you came back here, what was it like re-entering this space after having been in Europe all that time? Did you notice a culture shock or this is so easy to be in that you didn't notice anything except welcome? Well, the, it was a huge shock. And again, a lot of this moving around was about launching our daughter. So gave her the French culture by having her do her first eight years of school in France. And then there, it was clear she was not on the track for university. We had to get her back here and get special ed training for dyslexia. So we came back here and we spent one hellish year in Taos. She went to every school in the valley and we left. It was just too big of a, a shock for a 14-year-old sophisticated girl to come back here. And if you don't grow up in this town as a kid, the schools can be pretty tough. They couldn't get past, oh, the French chick. <laughs> you know, Maybe if we'd weathered it out, it would have been fine. But we split. We went to central California, Cambria, little, again, a little sleepy beach town near the Hearst Castle. And what was your daughter's experience like educationally after you brought her back to the States? Did she adjust and do okay with everything? You know, that high school in Cambria changed her life. 
it absolutely changed her life. She had special ed teachers with her dyslexia, and it no longer became this handicap that was going to limit her. And now she's working on her PhD. She got through high school, went to Boulder, to Naropa, got her undergraduate, got her master's degree, and now she's working on her PhD. So, I mean, it all changed here. And what's her PhD in? In human sexuality. And she's a practicing therapist and sex therapist. A lot of people hear the word dyslexic. Mm -hmm. I think I know what it means. I think it means you jumble the words around when you read. Can you give us a sense of what that's like for you, someone who has this problem, and, and then also talk a little bit about how people who are experiencing something like this can be more sensitive to, say, their, their children who have it and, and be able to maybe give their children the gifts you gave your daughter. Yeah. I mean, growing up, it was tough. You know, my early schooling was um, a Catholic school and I had, you know, the nuns. And again, being the last of seven kids, it was like, oh, another O'Connor. You can go sit in the back. And, you know, I couldn't read. And you know those things where everyone reads a little paragraph and you go around? I mean, I would have these panic attacks and I'd try to figure out which paragraph was going to be mine. And I'd try to look through all the words and then but I couldn't do it. You know, I couldn't read out loud and people would laugh at me and, oh, you're stupid and this and that. It was back in this, you know, back in the bad old days. I mean, now there's so much understanding about dyslexia. So we see things differently. And surprise, a lot of creatives are dyslexic because we don't look at things linearly. We look at them holistically. I mean, a very short example, like the word cat. And dyslexic sees the cat, and that stops you. You can't keep reading if you're, you know, all of a sudden a cat's in your mind, like a picture of a cat. So when you look at the words, what do the words look like on the page, and how come you're not able to read them? What's going on psychologically or physically? You know, there's all forms of dyslexia. There is the flipping of letters. I don't have that. And numbers, like visually on the page, people see things. My form of dyslexia is I, I literally get stuck. I'm trying to see a picture of each word. I'm doing things visually, not intellectually. So in other words, to read is a struggle or was a struggle. I've actually overcome that. I actually got into poetry through my dyslexia because their poems were small enough that I could get from the beginning to the end and see something in its entirety. Whereas books, I could never read enough or fast enough. By the time I was on page eight, I had totally forgotten what happened in page one. Now, there are books you can read, and they zip along, the mystery novels. When you were working with this problem, did you ever come across a book that you could read, that you couldn't put down, that zipped along for you? No. I mean, and this is why I, I literally joined the military right out of high school. You know, most of my other friends were off to college, and I, there, that was not on the menu for me. So I'm trying to remember my first book, but it was in the Navy, 
that I started to get this connection between information that are in pages of books and being able to do something, i.e. navigation. And I was totally captivated by the stars and celestial navigation and using the sextant. And I got into that. And, and so a light went on. I've got to do this stuff in this book to be able to do this stuff in life. So when you are sailing a barge around the canals in France, you didn't just go, oh, I'll sail this barge. You actually had a little background in terms of how to navigate a boat. Yeah, although in canals, <laughs> there's no navigation to happen. <laughs> you know, it's... it's uh, you go one way or the other. You go up or down. Right, exactly. But I did have familiarity with boats, and I worked on a salmon boat, and, you know, I love boats. So now that your daughter is well underway in her adult life, have you had opportunities to talk to her about her childhood experience and how it landed for her as a child and now how she looks back on it as a therapist? She always wanted a more normal life. I mean, here we are in New Mexico in an earth ship, living on three miles of dirt road to get to our house. Then we go to live on a boat and surprise the roads along the canal, dirt. She always wanted to live on a paved street. In fact, she'd look at apartment buildings and go, God, I wish we could live there. Meanwhile, we're having this incredibly creative life she wanted the opposite. And then we uh, came back to Taos, back on the dirt road. And then we went to Cambria. And that was the first house she ever lived in that was somewhat normal. You know, there was pave pavement. There wasn't sidewalks, but there was pavement. <laughs> that was a big deal. And then the landlord inexplicably raised the rent and had to find another place. I found this amazing little... Um, guest house on a 500 acre ranch and when we went to go look at it we're going up the canyon a little bit and then you turn right up onto a dirt road and the tear she just started crying and crying she goes this reminds me of Taos it's like oh god you know so it's funny just something as simple as like a paved road in front of your house was a big deal well, now I'm actually curious. She's living in Colorado. What does her environment look like now, and how does her life express itself? She's amazing. I mean, she just bought this little house in Denver, and she's got the white picket fence <laughs> and a, a beautiful house, and she's, she's, um, she's living her dream. And does she have a family yet? No. She works a lot, you know, working on a Ph.D., having a practice, putting on events, similar to Pecha Kucha, but they're called bedpost confessions. And they're wildly popular. They always sell out. She does them about two, three times a year in Boulder with two other women. They put on these events and they just pack the place. So does she often come back here or has she forsaken dirt roads forever? She comes periodically, yeah. You know, I always said Taos is great from about age 27 on. And now she's 29. She, I think she really appreciates Taos now. 
So as you move forward in, in your life, what are some of the things that are on the docket for Paul O'Connor as he moves into 2020? Well, we haven't talked at all about Tizia. Um, Tizia and I have always worked together, and she's an Ayurvedic practitioner. She functions as an Ayurvedic doctor in a way, although she's not a doctor. We have clients that come here and spend seven to ten days doing what's known as a panchakarma, the classic Ayurvedic detox, cleanse, rejuvenation. I work with her on that. I do the cooking, the cleaning, I teach a yoga class, I do all the background work. But it gives me plenty of time to go into the studio and work with my art. So we really work together here. You know, this is a collaborative environment. So the future for me is um, continuing with my artwork and continuing to, to work with Tizio. Tell us a little bit more about Ayurveda. What does that entail for people who don't know anything about it? Ayurveda is the oldest form of medicine on the planet, and it's from the Vedas. It's the science of life, Ayurveda. It boils down to really the five elements, space, air, fire, water, earth. And everything is some form of combination of those. It's really about achieving balance. And I would say primarily food is your medicine, is another primary tenet of Ayurveda. And not everything that is good for you is good for me. It's really finding out your dosha, your constitution, what you need. So these blindly following, oh, I'm going to do a raw food diet, I'm going to do paleo, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. There's nothing wrong intrinsically with any of those, but it just may not be good for you. And yet people think, oh, this is good across the board. From an Ayurveda point of view, what are some of the things that are good for you? My constitution is fire, which is pita in the language of Ayurveda. And so, surprise, <laughs> I grew up with chilies and Mexican food and hot and spicy, which is horrible for me. I'm already fire. Why am I putting more fire in me? I mean, that changed my life when I figured that out. And now I enjoy chili maybe once a month. It's not like never again, but not every day. I mean, I used to always have a jar of salsa in the fridge and I would put it on everything. Wrong. So I need cooling foods, not heating foods. Something as simple as that, that one idea, one principle, one discovery can change your health and your life. And how does one find out their Ayurvedic state. Yeah, well, seek out somebody like Tizia, an Ayurvedic practitioner. She does consultations and goes very much in depth and looks at a myriad of um, indicators that will determine what you're composed of. And it's either kapha, which is earth and water, or pitta, which is water and fire, or vata, which is space and air. And then once you figure that out, start making some changes 
bring you to balance. It's all about coming back to balance. After all this work and you're moving into 2020, do you feel balance is something you've been able to achieve well enough to have a full excitement about what's coming next? Yeah, you know, I'm really excited about 2020. I think it's going to be transformative. I think we've been out of balance. I say we collectively as a society, we collectively as a planet. There's so many levels of imbalance that I think are untenable. I think this is going to be a year, a swing back towards balance. It's not going to happen in a year, but I think there's going to be a swing towards balance. Well, Paul O'Connor, it's been a real pleasure to have you share some of your stories here on Twice Five Miles Radio. Thank you so much for your time and all the work you do. And thank you, Navi. I mean, this is it's just been a, a joy and a pleasure to do this interview with you. And there you go, my friends. Paul O'Connor talking about art and traveling and boats and all of the stuff that he does. It was a real pleasure to do the interview with Paul, and it's a pleasure to air it again for you now. If you'd like to reach out to Paul, his website is pauloconnorart.com. P-A-U-L-O-C-O-N-N-O-R-A-R-T.com. pauloconnorart.com. And just a little side note, after I finished the interview with Paul a couple of years ago, we sat down for a photo shoot, and he wanted to take a picture of my face. So we set it up in his, in his kitchen area, and he's a professional photographer, as you know, so he was able to capture my image. And I have to say, his work, his black and white work, Paul's black and white work is just absolutely terrific. And if you live in Taos, you're probably familiar with Taos Portraits by Paul O'Connor. He published a book a few years ago with the artistic black and white photographs of many, many, many of the influential Taos artists. So it's, a, it's worth, worth looking at. I just looked at a, a online just now, and you can pick one up at used on eBay for $285. So that's the signed one. Maybe you have one in your, on your shelf as well. So this is about it for us today. Thank you ever so much for, for spending the time. And you have been listening to Twice Five Miles Radio, fertile ground for conversations worth listening to and remembering. I'm your host, James Nave, always broadcasting first on WPVMLP Asheville 103.7 and streaming online, WPVMFM.org, the voice of Asheville, heard all over the world and on other community radio stations like KCEI Cultural Energy Radio out of Taos, New Mexico. Thank you, Walter Parks, for our theme song, WalterParks.com, if you're interested in any of Walter's music. Hats off to you, Devine Dial, for managing WPVM-FM. If any of you out there listening would like to know more about community radio, WPVM-FM.org. You can find out a lot by just checking that website out, WPVM-FM.org. If you'd like to reach out to me, nave at jamesnave.com. That's my email, and my website is jamesnave.com. Love to have you take a visit and see what you think. Also, you're invited to come any Saturday morning, 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, and participate in my Imaginative Storm Writing Prompt of the Week session, which I co-host with my creative collaborator, Allegra Houston. We get 
together with writers from all over the world, 10 a.m. Mountain Time, noon Eastern Time, and we write for an hour. And after we write and share our work, we spend another half an hour, if you would like to stay a little longer, talking about all of it. So it's great fun. Really do like to do it. And um, we'd love to see you there. Doors always open. ImaginativeStorm.com. That's ImaginativeStorm.com if you're interested in joining us and writing for an hour one Saturday in the near or far future. Here's a little line of poetry to close the show. For my purpose holds to sail beyond the sunset and the baths of all the western stars until I die. That's from Ulysses by Alfred Lord Tennyson. I've always liked Ulysses and... I think the idea of holding the purpose to sail beyond the baths of all the western stars is a good one. So maybe you will see me out there beyond the western stars one day. Who knows? Meanwhile, thanks ever so much for tuning in. Really do appreciate it. And I do hope you tune in again next time. And until then, I'll catch you on that turnaround somewhere down the line.